Good evening. Isaiah chapter 6. If you have your Bible, we'll be there in just a few moments. Isaiah chapter 6. Happy Valentine's Day. Hmm? Happy President's Day weekend. It's President's Day weekend, right? Tomorrow is President's Day. It's one of the biggies, isn't it? It's one of the biggies. I don't know what your plans are for President's Day, how you're going to commemorate the past presidents of the United States. I don't know. Anyway, any holiday that gets a day off, I'm all in favor. Although I think the office is open tomorrow. So, New York City, a few years back, um, they were transitioning uh, in their technology. Actually, I think they were just getting rid of their technology at their crosswalks. In New York City, like in so many places, you could push a button when you wanted to cross the street and wait, and then you would get the walk sign and you could walk across. The deal, though, is for several years, the buttons actually did nothing. They weren't hooked up to anything. They found that that really didn't help traffic flow, didn't help pedestrian. I mean, so they just were abandoning that system. However, the buttons were still there. People thought they still did something, and so people kept pushing those buttons. I'm I'm sure I would have done that as well. And it kind of got me to thinking about the illusion of control uh, that we have our time here and people turn to all sorts of different mechanisms to try to control their future, control their happiness. And more than the, the, the phony crosswalk buttons, to some extent, you can influence your life and influence some relatively important things in your life. Exercise, take care of yourself, good diet, um, Certainly having money helps with a lot of things in life. Um, There are some things that we can do, but in the end, I just looked this up. I was over here on my phone, so I hope nobody saw that, although I've just confessed it, so now you all know. I just looked up average life expectancy in the United States, and this is what it said. 79.68 years, which I thought was a little lower than that. It keeps going up. So, but... For your 79.68 years, what are the things that give you a sense of control? What are things that you turn to that make you feel like you can better manage your world? And then the scripture we're going to look at tonight is going to reveal the reality behind everything and is going to put in perspective, I think, just how short... 79.68 years is in the whole scheme of things. So, the scene opens in the middle of the 8th century B.C. The people of Judah were living in what people in future generations would refer to as the good old days. Things were good in Judah in the southern kingdom. The nation had experienced stability for decades Economic success, prosperity, people were happy. The king was enjoying um, high job approval ratings, uh, economy roaring, construction projects happening all over the place. Uh, The nation was strong in stature. The military was one of the strongest around, which was a very rare thing for Judah to have a, a formidable military. So, By the metrics that you would normally measure success, the nation was doing very, very well. King Uzziah 
had been on the throne for over 50 years. 52 years was the length of his reign. Started when he was 16 years old. That's quite a bit of stability. And that's longer than I've been alive. Um, Historians rate his time on the throne as being uh, the most prosperous for the nation since, since Solomon. Okay? In terms of relative peace and prosperity, it was one of the best seasons in the history of the nation of Judah. So they're doing well by all metrics. Except one. The spiritual metric. The spiritual pulse of the nation had grown faint. And it was really hard to notice because everybody seemed to be doing so well. Everybody seemed to be so happy. Given the economic vibrancy, um, it had gotten easier and easier for people to get caught up in the culture of materialism. The centrality of Yahweh worship had been replaced by the false gods, I think you could call them, of success, of achievement, of power. Um, while people still, okay, people still did go and worship Yahweh, but it just wasn't quite as important to them as it once had been. The prophet Isaiah had to be feeling great. Um, Shabbat services were full. Um, he was preaching to capacity crowds, and people were radiating success and happiness who came to worship. They showed up. They listened to his messages. On the outside, everything looked great. And that is when chapter 6 opens up, and that is when the news broke. Kind of one of those, where were you when JFK was shot? Where were you when the Twin Towers came down? Where were you when Martin Luther King was shot? Those moments that if you live through them, you remember where you were and what you were doing. The news broke. After 52 years, the king was dead. The collective heart of the nation sank. Over five decades of his reign, stability, prosperity, suddenly, shockingly interrupted. Shock and disbelief overwhelmed the people. What next? What's going to happen? Will there be a period of chaos? Will we find some leader like Uzziah? And so that's the pattern that I just described. Really, that's the pattern in Isaiah culminating in chapter 6, but it's the pattern that's been repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated, generation after generation. Since the beginning of time, things are good, smooth sailing. Um, Then, boom, something cataclysmic happens. Stock market crashes. Hitler invades Poland. Um, Those airliners crash into the Twin Towers. In this case, King Uzziah is dead. You're nearing retirement, or at least it's within sniffing distance. When the company that you have faithfully served for years announces cutbacks, and since you've been there the longest and you have one of the higher salaries, you're gone. You get a phone call, and you're told of an automobile accident involving somebody you love. One day you wake up great. 
by the end of the day you're in the ER and you're not sure what's wrong with you and you're, you're not sure if you're going to make it. Those are those crisis moments that everybody goes through. Collectively, sometimes as a nation, certainly individually, and for every family, those are moments that we can, can just count on that we're going to experience. Why in these moments, these questions come to mind, don't they? Why me? Why is God allowing this to happen? Um, how will I ever adjust, will I ever adjust to this new normal in my life. And that's where Isaiah found, finds himself. In a situation everybody at some point or another has found themselves. Um, he has been, um, <laughs> I guess in one sense, living the dream um, and has just been jarred, awake by the reality of a world full of uncertainty. So the thing is, the moment of crisis was for him and it can be, for us, a moment where God wakes us up to something bigger, something more real, something more lasting. This happens in the very first verse, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. You have your Bible? In the year that King Uzziah died, and everyone could remember that year. Yeah, wow. Remember when that news broke? In the, king, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That was the turning point moment for Isaiah, this powerful prophet of God. The king has died. There's a sense of shock. There's a sense of what's going to happen next. And at that moment, God chose to reveal himself to the prophet like never before. For starters, uh, the death of Uzziah is this jarring reminder of who's really in control, of who's really calling the shots. Um, we can influence the world around us. Yes, there's, there, there, there are things that you can do that are important for your health, that are important for your relationships, that are important for your financial future, all that kind of stuff. We can influence. There are plans that we can make there are projects that we can undertake and complete, Lord willing. Um, but ultimately, when it comes to who is in charge, it's God. And Isaiah sees that. I think Isaiah knew that. But it's one thing to kind of know that. It's one thing to go, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. To know it the front of your mind, to kind of be reminded of that. Um, he's always been in control, always will be in control. And so while we don't dare to pretend that we understand all that's going on, there do seem to be these kinds of moments, these crisis moments that God can use to not only reveal our lack of control, but also to cause us to put our trust in Him and see what he is up to in a new and a fresh way. Okay. So Isaiah, for him, the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah gets a glimpse of the real world, um, of the rest of the story, of what's really going on, and it is, oh, there's God seated on the throne. 
While there was chaos, while there was crisis, the hidden reality was revealed. God was still on the throne. God was still in control. Um, and isn't, I mean, isn't that good news? Maybe that's all we need tonight. I'm not going to stop here, but we could. Isn't that good news to know that God is in control? That really, no matter what we get swept up in, what's happening in the world of politics or sports or, or, or weather catastrophes, God's in control. Isaiah 6.1 is, is there in the Bible. I'm glad Isaiah wrote down what he saw for us because whatever I face, whatever you face, even when King Uzziah dies, even when the world seems to come crashing down, the reality is the same and it always has been. God is on the throne and nothing is going to change that. And that's so important for us to not lose sight of. And it really changes things. It really helps us have perspective, doesn't it? So verses 2 and 3. I talked this morning, by the way, I talked this morning before the sermon about how one thing you want to do as a preacher is not just tell what the text is saying, but do what the text is doing where possible, um, if a cert- like this morning, I think the text was pretty confrontational from James chapter 2, about money, about discrimination, about all those things. I think it was pretty in your face. I can't do what this text is doing. I, Hollywood can't do what this text is doing, okay? Um, what Isaiah experienced, we'll use our imaginations, that's all we can do. We'll seek God's face, but if we can just get a taste of what this was, okay? So, verse 2, this is what he saw. I saw God seated on a throne there. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. God was too holy for them to look upon. With two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Hmm. What was that vision like? It's another glimpse of this hidden reality. He's not imagining this. This is, this is real. And And he's getting this notion, I mean, very clearly, this is much more real than this passing world here, full of expiration date goals and values. God is being worshipped in heaven. God is on the throne. Even when everyone else may be trusting in everything else, they're pushing these buttons and calling on these these illusions that they believe will control their futures. The truth is, the reality is, God is being praised. The majestic heavenly beings, the seraphs, they're singing praises to Yahweh. And suddenly that vision that Isaiah is experiencing, I mean, this we we can deduce this. That vision is the only thing Isaiah can think about, okay? When you see that, you are not worried about all of the other stuff that you had been worried about 10 seconds before, okay? Um, Overwhelming. 
as he is confronted with the real world. God on the throne being constantly worshipped by these amazing angelic beings. Um, worshipped just as he should be. And while I'm grateful that Isaiah wrote this down, I'm grateful for what he recorded for us, I'm certain we, we, can't, we can't feel the way he felt, at least not by any sermon that I'm going to preach. Maybe God has some other way to convey that message to you, um, but it's too much. Check out what, um, what Isaiah records about these majestic beings, these seraphs, okay? Verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. They're just talking, okay? (laughs) This is just the seraphs talking. And the effect that that causes is incredible. Um, These aren't gods. Seraphs are not worthy of being worshipped. They don't compare to Yahweh. In fact, they have to cover their faces. I mean, we can't even look upon God's glory. Um, They're servants of God, and yet they are beyond anything we will ever experience here any Grand Canyon experience, any Dolby 3D surround sound when you're watching the new Star Wars. Or, I mean, they're, they're beyond anything that we can experience in the here and now, in this shadow world that we live in. And what they say over and over is holy, holy, holy. The whole place is shaking. And as they speak, this smoke just fills the room. Suffice it to say, Isaiah is not so much worried anymore about the things he had been a few days earlier. Oh, what's going to happen to the nation? Will our, our economy survive? Will people show up at the temple for our Shabbat services this week? Um, what, what's going to happen with this, the succession Who's going to ascend to the throne? All these headlines of the Jerusalem morning news, all the things everybody had been talking about at the barbershop and the market, he's not thinking about those things anymore. The only thing he can think about is that moment in which he finds himself. God is the only thing that matters for Isaiah here. So he's gotten this clear, world-rattling, jarring vision of God. And when that happens, it happened to him, and I think it happens for anyone who has this kind of experience or anything close to this. When we get that vision of God, we get, um, we see ourselves a little more clearly. Um, And all pride and pretense is swept away. Verse 5 His response, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So seeing God, to some extent, has 
has helped Isaiah see his place in the universe, <laughs> has allowed him to, to understand himself a little bit better. I don't know what he thought of himself at this point. Pretty good, pretty good preacher, pretty good minister, doing all right. I'm a prophet of God, all this kind of stuff, you know. But here he is, woe to me, I'm ruined, I'm unclean, I, I'm in big trouble. The people I'm leading, same situation, we're all in the same boat here. Um, they're unclean, and I've just seen God, I, and he's holy, and I'm not holy. Um, so his unworthiness has been exposed. Which a bright light can expose imperfections, can't it? And the bright light of God's glory has exposed all of his sinfulness and brokenness. He stands guilty before the Lord. And Isaiah's pretty sure this is it. I'm going to die right here. It's over. And not that this needs to be said, but just to be, to be safe, let's be clear on this. Isaiah is not um, feeling bad because Isaiah happens to be an unusually bad person. That's not it. Um, he's feeling bad because once you've gotten a glimpse of God, once you've gotten a, gl- gotten a glimpse of just how good God is, you get a sense of just how not good you are. And frankly, how unworthy you are to even be here, breathing, existing in the presence of God. I think that's, woe to me, I'm ruined. (laughs) I think that's what that is. Verse 6 and 7, verses 6 and 7. So this moment of despair, just then one of the seraphs flew to me. That had to be a pretty intense experience. Um, One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand. I can only imagine what Isaiah thought was about to happen here. Flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips Your guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. Now, when we think of the gospel, we think of Christ. We think of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. There are, however, for sure, glimpses, foreshadowing, um, tastes of the gospel in the entire Bible. The Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And this, this is one of those. Um, check it out. I mean, Isaiah, think about the gospel, what it means for us. Here in this story, Isaiah has just been confronted with the reality of his sinfulness, his unworthiness to stand before God, his unworthiness to exist in the presence of this holy God, And there is nothing much Isaiah can say, is there, except, Woe to me. I'm ruined. That's about all he can say. There's nothing much Isaiah can do about his guilt. He doesn't do anything here. He doesn't perform any act of righteousness here before the Lord. There's one thing he does, I guess. I I guess you could say there's one thing he does. He acknowledges his sinfulness, right? I'm an unclean, 
man. My lips are unclean. The people I've ministered to are unclean. Um, but then this forgiveness, this cleansing, comes from God in this scene. The seraph, again, that's the, that same voice that has been rattling the temple. Thresholds and doorposts are just shaking and smoke is filling. That same voice is now announcing his forgiveness. James Earl Jones on steroids here. Your guilt, the, the seraph says, your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, this is the gospel, okay? This is the gospel. Isaiah doesn't realize it. Isaiah doesn't understand the story like, like we do. We've seen the movie. We've seen the gospels. We know what happens to the Son of God, the life he lives, the sin offering on the cross, the mighty resurrection, the ascension to God's right hand, um, Isaiah has not seen what we have seen, um, but we know this moment in Isaiah 6 is pointing to Jesus. Okay? Isaiah would have been very familiar with the sacrificial system, right, that was going on at the temple all the time. All these, you know, doves and, and lambs and animals being slaughtered and the blood and the just the gore and the, I mean we're reading about that in our all in right now and we're and it, wow what's going on with all of that well we know now we know that it wasn't the blood of goats and bulls that was taking away people's sins okay that those things were just pointing to the perfect sacrifice that would come the lamb of god the sacrifice of jesus the atonement that Isaiah experiences is from Christ, is through Christ. He doesn't know that. But that's how all sins are forgiven. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption of that came by Christ Jesus, all, everybody, okay? God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So we put our faith in the sacrifice of Jesus. That is where our atonement comes from. So Isaiah, who has been trembling in the presence of God's glory, um, Isaiah, who has been made to feel the weight of his sin and his shame and reminded of, of the sins of the people that he serves, he now feels the utter relief of knowing his sin has been dealt with. He's guiltless. Finally, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. We're about to arrive at our powerful prayer, okay? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. 
So this is, um, this, that's the prayer right there, this dialogue. Here I am, send me. That's Isaiah's request. That's what he wants from the Lord at the end of this encounter. Uh, the Lord needs somebody to go on mission. The Lord needs somebody to represent him in this world of unclean lips, of unclean people. In this world of people who are chasing after illusions of control. Who are trusting in everything around them except God. And Yahweh says, who will go? And who will, who will reveal my love for them, to them? And Isaiah says, I'll do it. I'll go. Obviously, God is not looking for somebody perfect. Isaiah knows that. He's, he's not a candidate who's perfect. Um, he's been devastated in this scene by his own sense of unworthiness. But God is, while not looking for someone perfect, God is looking for something available, someone available, someone um, willing to be honest about their unworthiness um, and sin. Isaiah is that person. Yeah, that's me. I'm a sinner. And so his sins are forgiven. And then that question, who shall I send? Who will go on my mission? And the last words are those words of that prayer, here am I, send me. Well, in Christ, I think we have, you can't jump to the end of the gospel, right? Forgiveness, grace, wow. I mean, part of that gospel story is, is that first part, is, is an acknowledgement of just how unworthy I am of how great is that chasm between where I am spiritually and where God is. Holy, holy, holy. And so the gospel does, like this experience in Isaiah 6, it definitely reminds us of who we are, that we're not good enough, that we're not righteous. No one is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in Christ, we've come to terms with that. We know we're not worthy. We've experienced, though, through the gospel, atonement. And redemption that comes through Christ. And that's not the end of the story, is it? We've also been called to mission in a broken world. We've also been called to represent God in this world. A kingdom of priests. So we've gotten a glimpse of the reality that God is on the throne as believers and knowing this kingdom reality and knowing that grace and forgiveness are ours in Jesus Christ, we've been touched, not with the burning coal, but with the blood of Christ. Um, we go back out into the world. We don't get beamed straight up to heaven. We go back out into the world, sent out on this mission because so many live in darkness and so many are chasing illusions I came across something recently that it just kind of, kind of painted a picture um, that I thought was helpful about the human situation and the mission that we're being sent on and this is from a pastor and author named J.R. Vassar and he was writing about uh, ministering one time in Myanmar, in Burma. And, uh, and in his travels and his work, 
he comes upon a broken Buddha. Okay? I'll read what he writes. One day we were prayer walking through a large Buddhist temple when I witnessed something heartbreaking. A large number of people, very poor and desperate, were bowing down to a large golden Buddha. They were stuffing what seemed to be the last of their money into a treasury box and kneeling in prayer, hoping to secure a blessing from the Buddha. On the other side of the large golden idol, scaffolding had been built. The Buddha had begun to deteriorate over the years, and a group of workers was back there diligently repairing the broken Buddha. I took in the scene. Broken people bowing down to a broken Buddha, asking the broken Buddha to fix their broken lives while someone else on the scaffolding was fixing the broken Buddha. The insanity and despair of it all hit me. He writes, we are no different from them. We are broken people looking to other broken people to fix our broken lives. We are glory deficient people looking to other glory deficient people to supply us with glory. Looking to other people to provide for us what they lack themselves is a fool's errand. It is futile to look to other glory-hungry people to fully satisfy our glory hunger. And doing so leaves our souls empty. Only Christ satisfies. And having experienced the reality of His forgiveness and the awesome power of His resurrection, the one thing we cannot be, like Isaiah in that story, the one thing we cannot be is unchanged. We can't remain the same. People trust in things that are passing away. People put their faith in the stock market or some political candidate or ideology or promotion. Or The reality is, all that stuff is passing away. At most, you get it for 79.68 years, give or take. The Lord reigns. The Lord is on the throne. And His people have to be open and available to His call on their lives to share the good news with a broken world. Let's pray together as we finish our time. Lord Jesus, what a powerful reminder tonight from Isaiah of the reality when we pull the curtain open and see the way things really are. How short is our time here? How perishable are the things so many trust in? 
the hole in our hearts can only be filled by you, Jesus. We praise you tonight for your glory, the power of your resurrection. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess on earth and under the earth and in heaven. How glorious are you, Jesus. And how grateful we are that you've touched us with your blood and set us free from the truth of our own unworthiness and our guilt. And my prayer tonight is just a simple one. Isaiah said, here I am, send me. My prayer for us tonight is that we will not be unchanged. That we'll be open to your move in our lives to be about your work. Because of what you've done for us. And because of how you have called us to go out into the world. Into the brokenness. And share the good news. We're so glad that you don't call the perfect. You call people like us. Here we are. Send us. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Let's be standing. Let's sing together. Hey.